episode 47 with author and chef David Zilber. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Calmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. What does atmospheric oxygen, Chardonnay, antibiotics, and pickles all have in common? Here's a hint. It helped you make all of that sourdough bread you baked during quarantine. Why? It's fermentation, of course. And today's episode is with the pharaoh of fermentation himself, David Zilber, chef, food scientist, and former head of the fermentation lab at the number one restaurant in the world, Noma. Today, we enter his expansive universe of ideas fueled by the little guy, the microbe. Known to some as a walking Wikipedia, David was not your typical academic achiever. A native of Toronto, he struggled to stay focused in school. The rote, linear curriculum based on simply memorizing facts was just not how he processed information, and his grades suffered as a result. He was more of a learn-by-doing type of guy, desiring to know not just the what, but the why. His mind was ignited by story and narrative and the cultural cross-pollination he grew up around with a Jewish father and a Caribbean mother at whose elbow he learned to fry latkes and plantains with equal aplomb. And indeed, it was in the kitchen where he could focus his unbounded curiosities, exploring beyond the mechanics of food preparation into the histories, biologies, ecologies, processes, and technologies that make up what we consume. At once a butcher, a baker, but not quite a candlestick maker, he worked his way through kitchens around Canada, eventually landing in Denmark at the aforementioned restaurant Noma where he made a name for himself as head of the fermentation lab. There, he created innovative ingredients like forest floor extract, made of fermented moss, bark, leaves, and twigs, sourced locally, of course. In 2018, he published the New York Times bestselling cookbook, The Noma Guide to Fermentation, along with collaborator and chef, Rene Redzepi. In today's episode, David and I just really geek out. We discuss fermentation and gravity, hurricanes and entropy, and every so often get lost somewhere in the universe. And what I love most is we get down to the lessons microbial life can teach us about time, about managing energy, and what the process of change really looks like. We're so glad you're here and we'd love to get to know more about you head to www.blackimagination.com backslash survey and answer just a few questions about yourself. It takes about four minutes and will help us understand where you are, where you're from, what you like. You can also find the link at the top of our Instagram and Twitter at Black Imagination. And those reviews, keep them coming. Head over to Apple Podcast and drop us a line. Let everybody else know what the hype is all about. And now, a fermenter's guide to the universe 
with Chef David Zilber. Mr. Zilber, welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I am so excited to hop into this conversation. I'm going to try to keep it uh, succinct in some kind of way, but I feel like there's just so many things to explore. Um, so, so welcome. Welcome. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be here. Of course. Um, so to start, who would you like to dedicate this conversation to today? Dedicate this conversation? Um, I guess it is trite to say, but I'll dedicate this conversation to my parents, to my, to my mother and father. Um, yeah, I joke that I am really like the perfect blend of them both. But my mother, um, they're both in some ways, you know, part of the immigrant song of the 20th century. Um, my mother was an immigrant from the little Caribbean island of Dominica. Uh, her mother passed when she was quite young. So she was, I guess, not that you're an orphan at the age of 20, but that's, that's a bit too soon for most. Um, so quite young, she, she left behind her life and moved to Montreal. And you know, she only had one great aunt camped out there. And so she had quite a limited um, network, but she forged a whole life for herself. And my father um, was born right after the Second World War in Montreal. Uh, by grandparents who fled Poland um, at the behest of Nazis chasing them out uh, and then ended up there. And, and he was the, the first of his family born in Canada. But my uncle on that side uh, was born in Israel, like mid-transit. So I, I like to, they, they both have, have done some pretty incredible things in their life. And my family history is, is you know, wild and crazy. I guess most families are, but... Um, my, my mom is a super charismatic preschool teacher that just oozes love and sociability. And, you know, um, my dad is this nerdy engineer. And I, I like to think that I am like both of them distilled. <laughs> so I dedicate this conversation to, to those two. Amazing. Amazing. Um, you know, we'll we'll circle back to those origins um, in Toronto, but like, let's hop right into it. Like, what is fermentation exactly? Fermentation, fermentation is this is the I perfected this definition. It's the trans it's the transformation of one ingredient into another with the help of a microbe. Mm -hmm. that's it you know a, a, a biochemist might have another definition which is a very limited definition uh, it's a very specific enzymatic or metabolic pathway that organisms specifically yeast will use to uh, make use of sugar in the absence of oxygen so when it's when it's deep under the water and there's no available oxygen for it to respire like we do uh, it will ferment and use a whole flight of enzymes to break down sugar and produce alcohol as a byproduct. Um, some people might extend that definition to talk about 
um, the fermentation of, of specific foods in specific ways, um, also in the absence of oxygen. Um, but uh, I like to think of it more broadly in, in this kind of cultural, this pan-cultural sense where, okay, in all the places where humans have transformed their food before eating it, uh, for the sake of preservation or for the sake of indulgence. And a microbe was involved in that picture, whether they knew it or not. I like to categorize that as fermentation. Yeah, and it's it's quite a, a natural process that touches us in many ways, like everyday ways, like very ordinary ways. Like what are some of those like everyday touch points of this process that's, that is definitely a natural part of life right and its cycle okay well if you if you woke up and you had a cup of coffee boom fermentation if you <laughs> went to the toaster and toasted your bread boom fermentation if you smeared cream trees on that bread or bagel fermentation um you know if for lunch you had a salad and it was drizzled with like a mustard vinaigrette boom fermentation as well uh if you had a little midday snack and you you nibbled on some uh some milk chocolate, also fermentation. If for dinner you <laughs> you had ramen, uh, you know, uh, seasoned with soy sauce, again fermentation. If you enjoyed a beer with that ramen, also fermentation. I mean, it is so incredibly widespread; it is almost inescapable. Some people consume something fermented every day of their lives. Um, it's estimated that fully one third of the calories ingested by humankind are touched by microbes in some way, shape or form. Um, and the, the, the best part about that is that this is a number that holds consistent over like centuries and millennia. Um, it is an incredibly important part of, of human cultures around the world. Every culture ferments their food in some respect. Um, we haven't found any culture that doesn't do it, that just eats like fresh foods, everyone's fermenting something, at least somewhere. Um, uh, and it doesn't matter that like the world changes technologically. It's like we, even when technologies come that would make, you know, the, the act of, of preservation by way of fermentation seem unnecessary, like in the past, 150 years with the advent of refrigeration, we don't abandon these foods. We keep them with us and then we apply technology to like make them better or make more of it, you know? So it's really, it's really fascinating that it is so embedded into um, human existence, um, but it really is all, all, all pervasive. And, and there's also um, a kind of like a, a kind of almost an existential lens that we can take with the process of fermentation as well, like just outside of food stuff, but just in the the cycle of life and the transition from one state to another, right? That 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 level of assistance that mm -hmm. this microbe uh, allows for, which is really about I don't know the process of change, right? In transition, it, yeah, yeah, it is. It is absolutely. The, the idea of transformation, um, it's, it's, it's a synecdoche for the entire process of, of what it means to become anything. Um, 
I mean, it is life at its tiniest scales writ large and magnified. Um, you know, when, when we talk about living day to day or, you know, the idea that, you know, you always wake up a new person, that you never step in the same river twice. If you study fermentation long enough, you'll realize that that applies to everything in every way, that change is the only constant, that it is inescapable, that it's almost like, if it seems like a surprising statement to say that like everything is changing all the time, that everything is constantly in a state of transformation. If that seems like the surprise, I think what's more surprising is the learning of the fact that it's like impossible to stay still. Like the flip side of that is, is more impressive, that stillness is the illusion, that there is only change. Um, the idea of something rotting on your counter, let's say that you, you went up to your country house for uh, a weekend with friends and you forgot who knows what, like a, a, a pear or an orange that you should have eaten like three days ago on your counter. You come back and it's covered in this green fuzzy mold, this beautiful kind of pale teal grayish penicillin that's now sprouted and is doing its work. It's inevitable that that would happen. There is a certain inevitability to, to, to this transformation that life is all around us everywhere, just waiting to take root. Um, Fermentation is a really good gateway to understanding the potential and the power and, and the ramifications of that fact, because it really asks you to pay attention to what forms of life you would like to let grow. It's about wrestling with the natural world and not about being in control of it, but about mediating a sort of mutualism, a pact where you agree to let certain things fall forward for their benefit and for yours while both saying, okay, we'll let you grow, but we won't let your distant cousin that might make both you and I ill. So you agree to enter this sort of, this, this sort of mutual transformation of, of something else that was once alive itself. Um, you let that take root in service of your mutual continuation. And once you start understanding how and why that works, what certain bacteria need to thrive, what others don't, um, even the fact that like the, the products of fermentation are themselves weapons against certain forms of life, but are gifts to others, that sort of mediation and understanding these, these nuances, um, I think is, is a powerful lens upon which to view the world um, and has really, really deep philosophical ramifications when you start digging into it. You've also um, likened it to to gravity, right? Yeah. Like, could you double tap on that? <laughs> We're going deep. Uh, yeah, yeah, we can, we can, we can liken this to gravity. Um, okay, so have you heard of the James Webb Space Telescope? No, I haven't. No, you should look it up. It's okay. The coolest thing. It is Hubble's replacement. Ah, uh, um, okay. I, okay, I think I've read yeah, about it. We'll so link it up in the show notes. Maybe, maybe you've seen pictures of it in the New York Times or something. Everyone's been reporting about it. It got launched on Christmas Day, uh, just last last month. Um, 
It's got these beautiful gold mirrors and it really is like the culmination of, of many countries and many thousands of people's um, human ingenuity and, and, and spirit of exploration. Um, anyway, there's something really funny about the James Webb Space Telescope. Um, Hubble orbits the Earth. Like it's, it's just out there, we get that. We get something orbiting the Earth. The James Webb Space Telescope was sent out about a million miles away from the Earth and the Moon, um, parked in its shadow to orbit nothing. And this is really, really funny. It's not, it's, it, there are ways in which you could say it's orbiting the sun and there are ways in which you could say it's orbiting the Earth, but it's not orbiting either of those things. It's orbiting what's called a Lagrange point. And it's orbiting Lagrange point too. And a Lagrange point is basically a hill in space where the balance between the pull of the earth and the pull of the sun in this three-dimensional sphere is, is like, it's, it's like a perfect hilltop upon which you could just like balance forever. And it's kind of unstable, but if you, if you just nudge yourself, imagine like blowing on a, a pencil from all sides and being so adept at that that you could keep it balanced on its tip. That's a little bit what a Lagrange point is like. Now, why am I talking about this? Because Lagrange points are known as attractors. They are places in space in, in the gravitational landscape of the solar system that you can orbit because the, the pull in any direction will kind of always send you back into its general vicinity. Um, and even though there's nothing there, it's the tension between these larger bodies that are very, very far away that'll kind of keep you positioned in this optimal spot. The funny thing about attractors is that they are chaotic. You might think that there's like order in being parked at this one spot and being able to swoop around the earth and the sun and stay there for years and years and years like the James Webb, tape, like the James Webb Space Telescope is about to do, but they're so sensitive to these minor perturbations that it's, you're never actually tracing the same path twice. You're like constantly fidgeting around this spot and that fidgeting is not orderly. It's completely chaotic. It's the definition of chaos. It's the definition of a complex path. Why am I talking about this? Because in nature, there are certain tensions. There are certain relationships, like the relationships between heavenly bodies that are attractors in the in and of themselves. There are certain symbioses that are so beneficial to their extremely powerful component players. If you wanna talk about powerful component players on, on the face of the earth, I would absolutely talk about humanity as a planet shaping force. And I would absolutely talk about microbes as a planet shaping force. Humans have changed the face of the earth and microbes have as well. Um, you know, the air that we breathe, the oxygen that is maintained in the atmosphere is thanks 
entirely to microbes that live both in the ocean uh, and inside the cells of plants. That oxygen wouldn't be maintained over unimaginable timescales. Oxygen's super reactive. It would eventually you know, meet iron as the Earth's crust erodes and then oxidize that and be locked up in the soil um, or sink to the bottom of the ocean. The fact that we have an oxygenated atmosphere is thanks to microbial life on Earth. Um, meanwhile, humans here in you know, the past 60,000 years since we left Africa en masse have also changed the face of the Earth and we're also changing the atmosphere. Um, fermentation and the recipes that are produced by these two enormous forces are things that see their mutual continuation together. That never quite stay the same, but maintain the relationships forged between these parties. Think about beer. That is something that has existed since the birth of civilization, since the birth of grain states in, in Babylon and ancient Egypt. It used to be made of wheat and barley. It used to be kind of almost eaten slash drank as like a porridge, but it was useful because it, through fermentation, made the grains more digestible and improved um, uh, their nutrient uh, ratios. Uh, and made them safe to eat against pathogens that might have, you know, in just a simple porridge that wasn't fermented, uh, taken hold. But the fact that they produce alcohol makes the porridge last a bit longer. It makes this soup uh, not only just taste good, but also be safer to eat for ourselves. So the fact that microbes take root in our foods and make them safer for us ensures that we keep making these foods in the same way that ensures that the microbes have a place to grow. And the recipe for beer, even if it's existed for 8,000 years, has changed a lot in that time. You know, first it was a porridge, then it was a mixture of grains and herbs. Then, you know, the German purity laws of 16 whatever take effect, and then it gets defined even more. And then there's the crap beer explosion of the 1990s, and then it starts looking like a whole bunch of different things. And now we have these absolute monuments to beer crafting that reach higher than the pyramids. If you've ever drunk, if you've ever driven by um, uh, a, a Budweiser factory or a, a Heineken factory, you've actually seen what these plants look like. These are massive stainless steel monuments to yeast and grain. The recipes change, but the relationships stay the same. The overall geometry of the interactions between this unseen world of organisms and the world that we understand as humans is something that persists over millennia. You think about it like, what else has that capacity? Languages change more than the recipes of fermentation. Humans evolve more than the recipes of fermentation. It's, it's remarkable to see the attractive force, and this is where it all comes back to gravity, the attractive force that is the most natural endpoint, like a ball rolling downhill for these different kingdoms of life 
to find within each other. So that's how I see fermentation as gravity, if you have that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Light work. Um, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, it was, I mean, man, like my mind went absolutely crazy as you were speaking because there's so, I mean, so many ways in which this, this process, um, you know, maps onto other ways of, of existence and even understanding, um, even like human sociology, like the, the kind of tandem relationship, um, that we have to capital, um, the kind of tandem relationship that, uh, that political parties have, right? Like that, that one, one can only exist in relationship to the other. It's, it's all quite relational. Like, and even if we're speaking of vig vision or, or, um, uh, or identifying an object, like, the foreground does not exist without the background, right? Like you actually need the background to see the foreground. And if there was not such a thing, it would just all blend into the same thing. And so even just the act of vision requires not only this um, uh, illusion of separation, but also the relation to actually see like the act of vision is actually an act of relationality, right. Or relativity. Yes. Um, okay. and so, you know, the existence of just one's own body or one understanding one's place in space is being in this illusion of stillness when it's really about you being in relationship to multiple bodies and energies that are pulling at you from all directions and in that it appears like you're you're one entity right but you're mm -hmm. actually just in this um, i'm sorry what's the name of the the the, the space hill uh, uh, a lagrange point yeah, you're actually in the Lagrange point, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> we are actually in like a a, 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 a a like dynamic Lagrange point at like every given moment. Um, but how then, you know, in thinking about like fermentation, this process of change, like pull it, like pulling it back down to earth just a little bit, like um, <laughs> how can we? Which is also beautiful because this is all happening at the same time, right? Like even time is kind of a Lagrange point, right? Like the present we can understand as a Lagrange point as well, right? Because there is always just a constant present and both the past and the future are stories that are pulling us and holding us in present, in the present, right? So anyway, um, but <laughs> thinking about, um, you know, this, this way... Of, of, of being this way of constantly being pulled towards something or like you said previously, you know, the act of walking isn't so much about you propelling yourself, but you constantly catching yourself from falling, right? Yeah. Like from one foot to the next, you're actually falling and just catching yourself from falling. Yeah. Um, but how can we think, how, what, what role does that have um, in thinking about um, our global food system and, and one that perhaps is a bit more liberative? Well, I think, um, I, I, I really like your analogy with um, 
you know, the idea of like walking is, is a controlled fall. You know, you, you stick a foot out um, to catch yourself. Obviously there's, there's a, a direct link to that idea and, you know, that of, you know, walking so fast that you trip over yourself. You know, if, if, you're, if your feet are out of sync with your descent towards the ground, your next foot will not be there to catch you to make <laughs> the next step. And you'll just fall flat on your face and you won't be walking anymore and you'll probably just get a bloody nose. I mean, that idea is, is the epitome of sustainability. And as much as that word gets abused and, and, and you know, greenwashed and made senseless these days, um, I think there's no better way to understand what it is than, than talking about this. I mean, it takes energy to move a muscle. It takes energy to even flex, you know, your shin muscles to make yourself pitch forward. And it takes more energy to move the right foot and then catch yourself and absorb, you know, the impact of, of your own fall. Any sort of sustained movement requires an input of energy. But, you know, you, you best make sure that that sustained input is, is in sync, that that sustained input is, is um, you know, matches up to keep you going so that you can continue. <laughs> and I think it, it, it is about continuation, you know? Um, the food system is, is uh, way out of whack. I think primarily because um, we have intensified it um, to be as profit-driven as possible, um, to be as uh, commodified as possible. Uh, and I think one of the worst aspects of the food system is that it's blind to itself. You know, once, once grains enter a silo uh, in a distribution network or in a cooperative, where it's, its point of origin beyond a country that can be the size of a continent is moot. You know, that gets transferred off somewhere, even if it's processed, you might lose any information about what it is. And you're right, um, going back, taking it back up into space for a second. I mean, yeah, everything is, everything can only be said to exist in relation to the things around it. And that matters. That matters when it comes to how we grow our food and how, how, we, how we deal with agriculture. Because everything on life exists in relation to the thing, the things around it, you know, it's like, there's no organism that doesn't have some sort of impact on its surroundings in order to feed itself. Um, but up until, you know, the, the invention of, I don't know, slash and burn agriculture, man's control of fire, um, we just had to take what nature gave us. We, had, we just had to take what nature gave us and, and subsist off of what we could find in our surroundings. Um, you know, the amount of petrochemicals that are pumped into the agricultural system, not just to move tractors, but um, in the Haber-Bosch process for, for fertilizer, for the mining of phosphorus that, you know, get pumped into the soils to make the soils 
artificially more fertile than they would be with the level of intense extraction that we pull out of them. So we're, we're really kind of operating on borrowed time here. Um, it, is, it is not even about, you know, continuation at this point. We're like constantly inventing new technologies to move our right foot faster you know, to like spring load it so it's there to catch us. But then, oh no, we've now, you know, kind of entered this technological trap where, okay, we need another fix to be able to catch us because now we've tried to catch up with this spring loaded mechanism. Now we need a rocket loaded mechanism to fire our left foot to catch the right. And uh, that's going to end in disaster. <laughs> like there's, there's no way around it. Um, I have to talk about thermodynamics a little bit here real real quick um to to um explain this next point um you know thermodynamics is is the study of how heat moves around um you know you you put an ice cube at negative five degrees on top of another ice cube at negative five degrees in a freezer at negative five degrees and nothing happens you know that that we understand that's how you build a thermometer using that principle. Um, but you put an ice cube at five degrees uh, on top of a, 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 a block of metal at 20 degrees um, and you find that that ice cube melts um, because there was a, a net transfer of heat from the hotter block to the colder block um, that moves spontaneously in one direction and one direction only. That causes spontaneous changes within the system in one direction and one direction only, from hot to cold. Now we perceive the ice cube is getting hotter, but really the ice cube is cooling down the surroundings and we might notice the change in it because there's a phase transition, et cetera. But really the entire universe is moving from hot to cold and has been since the dawn of time and will continue to until this chilly heat death trillions of years into the future. The fascinating thing is that sometimes when you're moving from hot to cold, when you are transferring heat and disorganizing the system, increasing the entropy of your environment, you can sometimes create order. Hurricanes are a great example of this. You heat up the water in the Atlantic Ocean near the equator, and that heat tries to dissipate into the atmosphere. Now, normal heat dissipation, like our you know, ice cube melting in, in uh, a warm room, is normally just chaotic and disordered, and you can't really find any order in an ice cube melting. It's just kind of happening and making a mess on your counter. Um, but sometimes when heat is trying to get out of the system, it will create order and sustain order in service of dissipating itself faster, of distributing itself into its surroundings faster than it would be able to otherwise if it was just random and chaotic and turbulent. And you might think that hurricanes are agents of destruction, but the fact that there is this calm center in the eye of a hurricane is something extremely poignant to keep in mind. Why should the calm center of an eye of a hurricane be calm and stay calm when there's all this violence around it? Why is there an updraft that makes the eye of the storm the safest place to be? 
And when you think about it, if you stayed inside the eye of the storm, you would never be hurt by the storm. That maintenance of order in a sea of disorder is what's called a dissipative structure. It's something that exists and is maintained and is more orderly than its surroundings because it exists in service of dissipating the heat of the system faster than it could otherwise. But the fascinating thing about a hurricane is that once it moves onto land and it's no longer fueled by the hot ocean beneath itself, it dies out. We, we all know this from watching weather reports. Okay, the hurricane, the hurricane has broken ground. It's now been downgraded to a tropical storm and it's just gonna end up in heavy rains, you know, 200 miles inland. The thing about that is that if that same amount of heat contained within the hurricane was not a hurricane, was not a cyclone with an eye, with this preserved order and dissipative system, it would take longer to dissipate once it reached land than it would as a hurricane. Once it's stripped of its fuel source, a dissipative system will disappear faster than that same amount of energy just thrown into the ether. And that's because dissipative systems exist to dissipate their fuel sources faster than any alternative arrangement, you could say. Order is created from disorder in service of destroying the source of order that created it in the first place. This is like a law and a rule of the universe. And these ordered systems are themselves attractors. That's what they're called. They're attractor states in the, in the phase space of you know, all the possible thermodynamic arrangements that you could realize in physics. Now, living organisms were once born out of chaos. You wind the clock of Earth back 3.5, 4 billion years, and you'll find a soup of some organic molecules and some interesting amino acids floating either on a warm, you know, kind of mucky pond on the surface of the Earth or deep down in a pocket of a hydrothermal vent somewhere on the ocean floor. Wherever it first happened, it took root and there was this cellular dissipative structure that took hold and never let go. Then it found a way to replicate itself. But it always exists in service of consuming the energy that creates it in the first place faster than that energy could be consumed in any alternative relationship. Fast forward 3.5 billion years to today and we find that we are a global ecosystem. This, this, this life force that covers the planet entire and we're but one sliver of that. But we still exist in service of depleting the energy sources that bring us life in the first place. The point, the rub of all of this is to understand how to put the brakes on that dissipation to ensure that we don't dissipate ourselves out of existence like a hurricane on land. Constraints are some of the most important parts of complex biological systems. You think about what a cell even is, and it is a constraint on the, the transfer of resources and excrement from the surroundings to the interior and from the interior into the surroundings. If cells were 
perfect containers and nothing would ever come in or out. But if cells didn't exist, then there would be no definition of self. And any dissipative structure would just pff, react once and then that would be the end of it. The mediation of energy transfer is one of the most important tenets of life on Earth. And right now, humanity seems to be doing a really, really bad job of that. We seem to be letting the excrement pile up and we seem to be tapping into all of these little, you know, gold mines of energy reserves that have been produced over the course of hundreds of millions of years and using them up in a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a percent of the time that it took to produce them. You know, when we dig oil out of the deserts of Arabia, transport it across the globe so that it could be fired in a fertilizer plant that fixes nitrogen from the atmosphere into you know, a pellet you can throw into your field, you got to scratch your head and say like, how is this sustainable? In some respects, we are doing our job as dissipative systems, as dissipative structures extremely well because we are just mining the earth for every last scrap of energy in the service of our own continuation without realizing that we're simultaneously ensuring our own destruction. So waking up to sustainability's true meaning, which is for me continuation, whether it's in the food system, whether it's in transportation, you know, any form of, of energy production. And the food system is energy production. It is the most important form of energy production. The entire, every oil reserve on earth, every natural gas reserve on earth could just disappear tomorrow. We would be okay if we still had food. We would have to walk everywhere. There would be a bit of, it would be chaos for a while. But if we still could grow food, we as a species would be okay. We have to understand that. Food is energy production, and it is absolutely essential for the continuation of our species and understanding how to do it at a rate of replacement and continuation in, in harmony with the rates of continuation that exist in the world and have existed in the world long before us and will exist in the world long after us. Getting on that clock is crucial to our continual survival. Whew. David, um, <laughs> there were so many like gems. Um, <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying to like uh, translate. Right. I'm trying. I'm trying to translate. First of all, you perfectly described my dating life um, because <laughs> I am apparently a dissipator, uh, which is an attractor. Uh, of 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 chaotic form. So yeah. I <laughs> so, <laughs> I was like, oh, oh bitch, I'm with the eye, I'm with the eye of the hurricane. Um, but also, like, I think it's something that's really quite beautiful. In you know, obviously, we're talking about you know, food production and sustainability, and kind of this, 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 um, this kind of in impending impending um what's the word i'm looking for mm, correction this impending mm -hmm. correction 
this impending mm-hmm. correction um, that the train of mass capital acquisition uh, mm-hmm. has us on, right? And and you know when we're talking about capital um, and its demands um, and what it calls for, the levels of oppression um, that it calls for in order to um, further further its its own agenda it is like you said you know it is a uh, the recipe uh changes but the the relationship stays the same right so if we're even thinking about you know the history of the american or this you know this 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 experiment called america you know if we're thinking about even like design and we're thinking about systems of oppression what we see over and over again is the changing of recipes in order to maintain a certain relationship, right? Status quo um, in that respect, for sure. Exactly, exactly. Sure. But this, yeah. it's the same shit, right? It's the yeah. same shit, <laughs> just flavor. a different recipe. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. But also, like, you know, in understanding this kind of universal law of energy dissipation. And even as you were speaking, it makes me think about the ways in which it occurs, even in our natural life. Like, you know, if you are uh, draining, you know, just your kitchen sink, right? Mm -hmm. Like there is actually a chaos that is happening, right? As the air is trying to escape the drain and the water is also trying to go down the drain, right? There is this literal battle that it is having. And in order to solve the battle, it actually creates a whirlpool in order to dissipate that tension, right? And so- Faster than it could otherwise. You're absolutely right. Exactly. Faster than it could otherwise. And it also makes me think, you know, about just our lives, you know, in general, and particularly being in uh, a pandemic that is transitioning into an, you know, an endemic, you know, I was, I I would run every day um, during the pandemic um, because I, you know, I stopped going to the gym, whatever. And, uh, and I thought I was doing it for health reasons, but it was, <laughs> I really learned a lot from nature, right? Like I was going out for, for what I thought was a run and what I was getting was a lesson. And I remember when spring came and the park just went fucking crazy. I was like, like, okay, okay, cool. I'll pay a little bit more taxes cause the tulips are popping off. Like y'all did that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the lesson was how do you bloom in the midst of chaos? The plants do you know? anyway. <laughs> but that's what I'm saying, right? Like how, yeah. how as if, if all of this craziness is happening around us, right? Cause this is also the, you know, we were in an election year. Like there was a lot of chaos happening and yet the tulip still bloomed. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and the birds still came and that, these two things were happening at the same time. And I think somehow we've convinced ourselves that that those two things cannot coexist. That the that the violence, you know, of a storm and the calm of the eye are not concurrent. And yet mm-hmm. nature shows us over and over again that mm-hmm. they are. And so in a way, if we're talking about, you know, you know, pulling ourselves down from space and even, you know, past, you know our skin into our interiority like that there is it is an act it is an actual universal law that it is it is possible to find calm in the midst of chaos all around you and that 
and the process of finding that despite your situation, like despite your environment is really more an act of allowing than an act of holding on to, right? It's an act of actually flow, right? It's yeah. an act of motion. It's an act of movement, um, more of than acceptance. an act. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but to, to reel back actually <laughs> to, um, back to earth and then also time, um, Toronto, right? Yeah. Like growing up in Toronto, you mentioned earlier, you know, being the scion of, of, of a Caribbean mother and, uh, a Jewish father. Um, but what did that look like, you know, practically in, in this North American country and, and going through this, you know, education system that you kind of rebelled a little bit you didn't it wasn't quite linear the progression yeah no um yeah my my early life uh it's i definitely didn't grow up rich i mean me and me and my sister shared a bedroom until i was like 11 we just lived in a high rise in this high density neighborhood in north york right by peanut plaza my dad got laid off from his job at Boeing, was hopping around. Um, there was like a bit of like a manufacturing crisis in, in the early 90s in, in my neck of the woods. So for like a couple of years, it was like, well, my dad was out of town just trying to send checks back home. It was a little bit like a single parent household with my mom doing double duty. And um, I don't want to say that we didn't, we didn't have like a lot of money. But the really fun thing about not having a lot of money as a kid is that you don't know that you have a lot. You don't know that you don't have a lot of money. <laughs> like your parents might be worrying about the bills, like taking the stress of stuff, but like they send you to the park and you know, you have a whole afternoon and it's like, you get that one toy and it's like, sure. It's not as fancy as like Eric's at school when he got the power wheels or whatever, but you know, you got one Spider-Man action figure and you've, you, you, bloody loved that Spider-Man action figure more than life itself. You know, so you want to talk about chaos? I mean, like Toronto is like a hectic city. It's, it's, it's branded itself because it was true. It's like one of the most multicultural metropolises on earth. Like more cultures, more immigration, more people just living on top of each other. Um, it's really funny. My dad sent me uh, like a, a picture that he found in his archives of of like my grade, um, what was it? It must've been like, oh, Muhammad was there. So that must've been like grade three class photo. And honestly, it could have been United Nations. It was like two white kids. And like one was from Yugoslavia and the other one was like, uh, like a white family, like descended from Brits, you know? Um, it was fantastic. Um, my, my crew growing up, you know, my, my like super, three tight friends. One was Romanian. Uh, he was Jewish as well. There was me, like half black, half Jewish. Paul from Taiwan, Justin, uh, like South, Southeast Asian. Um, and, and like we would go to each other's homes and uh, like one night it would be like pickles and sauerkraut. And the next night it would be like mango achar. And then the next night it would be like instant noodles and some spice that Paul's dad got out of the one room that we never walked into, you know, 
And at my house, it might be Palau or it might be like uh, matzo ball soup, you know? So it's like, I, I really enjoyed my childhood um, for all those reasons. The school part, <laughs> yeah, that was chaos of my own making. That was just me being <laughs> this like apathetic kid that didn't understand how academia worked. Um, I just did not like being told what to be interested in, I think. Um, and subsequently just wasn't interested in it. Uh, it, just, it. It just manifested as apathy, like just not handing in assignments, whatever. And I knew that I frustrated my teachers because um, they, they could smell that I was bright, but I just didn't give two shits. Um, and uh, like I, I, I had like rocky grades in science class until one day, one of my science projects was like build a motor. And I'm like, oh, cool. I get to work with my hands. And then I come to school the next day with like this like AC adapter and like I've coiled copper wire myself and found like an iron magnet to put inside and like made this whole housing and structure out of wood in my dad's shop. And he's like, where did, he's like, wow, you, you, you nailed electromagnetics. Cool. Here's a hundred percent, you know? So, um, I think the big takeaways from, you know, a, a childhood in the public school system in Toronto that I now reflect on is that there are more ways to be smart than the establishment gives credit for. There are more ways to learn and to carry intelligence and, and to be adept and um, engaged in the world than, you know, the system that produces more liberal arts degrees than <laughs> than countries can employ um there's justice too um and i really learned that when i when i started working in kitchens because all of a sudden it's like oh wow like it clicked you know i i signed up for this co-op placement in a restaurant because my grades were too bad to go to university like i was not getting in anywhere i had to take an extra i had like redid a bunch of courses in my final year but in kitchens it was like oh wow okay here is, there's a, there's a clock, there's a timeline, there is, um, you know, a goal, there is something that you have to work with your hands and like get the feel of to understand, to like make sure the sabayon is just right. And it's intuitive knowledge. It's not learned by rote. It's like learned by feel. That's very different. Um, and it just, it really clicked for me. The, I, I think the funniest thing is that once I was out of academia, I, I started, because I'd always loved the sciences. I just didn't like science class. I started gravitating back to science of my own accord because I got none of it in kitchens. And then in my time off, I just started picking up books and you can see all the books behind me on the Zoom call. But, um, you know, the, the first science nonfiction book is on there and then it blossomed into like 500 more because I just kept asking questions. I was like, Oh, but that was a cool thing. How does that work? And then I buy a book on it and I buy another book to ask, to, to answer some other question while, you know, having Wikipedia open on the side. Um, that accumulated over the course of my twenties. And then when I ended up at Noma, um, all of that just residual autodidactic knowledge finally found a home because here was a restaurant at the top of the world. Um, 
that actually employed science in the crafting of its food. And then it was a no brainer that I fit in into that lab. So um, that's kind of, you know, the, the trajectory, the arc of my own personal history, starting in Toronto and now working as a food scientist and writing books about, you know, fermentation and universes and, you know, dissipative structures and stuff. And it's, it's kind of come full circle. Yeah, but I mean, to be honest, David, like, you're really like the coolest person I know. And I don't even know you, but like, I think you're just cool as fuck. Um, and like also really seeing the ways in which like traditional education is more in service of capital than service to students. And what does it look like when students don't have uh the courage or like in your case, the guidance counselor who says, you know, actually you seem to be good at cooking, right? You like to bake cakes that you were like baking, like, you know, cakes for friends in high school. Like maybe try this thing out for every one of those moments. There's another 30 kids in that class that just end up somewhere right Mm -hmm. like so I think your story not only speaks to the power of curiosity which lies within all of us I mean like it's scientific fact that like actually learning something new gives us a dopamine hit which is why we end Mm -hmm. up you know spiraling out on Instagram (laughs) you know or Wikipedia like into the middle of the night because we're constantly being fed we're naturally curious human beings but you know kind of kind of um, like you've spoken with, you know, with thermodynamics and even spontaneity it, and, 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 you know, the role of um, like, right, like, like glucose in, the, in this exchange, like it actually just takes that spark, right? It takes that one initial nudge, mm-hmm. right? In your case, it was this guiding counselor to then actually unlock unlimited potentialities, mm-hmm. you know? Right. And, and I think about how, how can we serve as a nudge? I mean, hopefully for me, like, this, you know, this podcast is a nudge, right? That this shared conversation, you know, is a nudge. Um, but like, I just find it fascinating um, that even in spite of, you know, you bloomed, right? Like you, you, <laughs> even what seems to be like, you know, I'm empathetic or this is like some foolish shit. You kind of ended up right where you belong and but but not easily defined either right because it's like I mean yeah okay I worked at like I don't know the number one restaurant in the world <laughs> um you know casually um but then you're also a photographer yeah as well like how how do those how do those um how do those pathways relate like how do those ways of understanding um collate i i I guess honestly it it stems from me being like easily bored i guess which is i guess what feeds um like the 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 like thirst for knowledge um but the photography i mean I've, i've always been like creative and expressive and the photography was again something that you had to like intuit to to get good at my my story with how i got into that is i used to just have like a early 2000s shitty little uh, point and shoot Sony, whatever party camp, you know, USB drive thing. Um, and I, I broke it in a mosh pit at a, a Crystal Castles concert, if you remember them, uh, in Toronto. 
and then you know the 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 next day we were going up to uh, my friend's uh, summer house and it was winter and we were spending New Year's there and uh, I was like oh but I have to take pictures of our like little getaway and I just grabbed a disposable camera spent the weekend with this disposable camera because I'm like I just have to take some form of photo whatever this is fun and I you know a week later I get the pictures back and they're awful <laughs> like half of them are like out of focus or whatever I'm like oh okay film like you actually you can't just take like a million photos and then just like pick the good one you actually have to think about it you have to intuit the process internally and it's it's not about editing or sifting through just you know a mountain of produce after the fact you have to like think about what you're doing before the fact and some part of you know any good photographer in my in my opinion embodies the act of photography embodies the act of image making inside their own brain you know a, a good photographer doesn't need a light meter they know they can look they can walk into a room just look at kind of the ambient light look at where where it's coming in through the windows whatever and be like oh this setting that setting okay this exposure okay let's go you know and so maybe that's where it lines up with with the act of cooking this like embodied knowledge I think I have to like do things and understand them by doing them to really get inside them and, and see them um, as outlets for like creative potential. Um, so yeah, that's, that's how that matches up. But I've, I've been shooting on film on the same film stock for um, poof, must be almost like 15 years now. Um, my girlfriend keeps bugging me to like make a book, <laughs> which I probably should. I, I released one book and I've had a few shows a solo show and some group shows um but yeah it's it's there's there's a lot of material there maybe i'll go on to that you know it's interesting as you were speaking it hit me uh your 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 relationship i, I, I cannot tell you what the relationship I'm, I'm gonna i'm not gonna sit here and like psychoanalyze you but what i really see is that this is actually about time mm-hmm this that that you know this even 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 the attraction to fermentation mm-hmm. is really about time um photography the same you know as you were speaking about photography um it made me think of this the the act of you know anticipating time yeah right of being at, at the ready uh, to anticipate time. And then in the capture of the image, the missing quotient, you know, between both the camera operator and the subject or object being photographed is actually time. Yeah. Right. Like even, you know, when you, when one takes a photograph, um, you really need about a generation to actually even understand it. And in a way, photography behaves that way that over time, it kind of all becomes art, yeah. right? You look at an old photograph and it just becomes art, right? In, yeah. in the capture of it. And, and in a way it is fermenting, right? Like it, there is an actual transition over time that needs to take place that then produces mm-hmm. another thing. And so in many ways they're, 
almost the same process. There are chemicals involved. There's alchemy. You know, there is, you know, balancing light, heat. You know, I don't know if you work in a dark room, but it's many actually of the same processes um, at work here. And it's really interesting. But even engaging with, you know, fermentation and then the fermentation of images, you know, how has that shifted your relationship to time? Um, or how do you understand time through that framework? Yeah, it, it, it makes you, well, I guess in, in, in fermentation, you're, you're, you're right about photography though. Um, you know, as you're saying it, I was kind of like, oh yeah, that, that kind of hits. I mean, even in the dark room, temperature is a big thing too. Temperature is absolutely crucial to fermentation. It's everything actually. Um, and, and in, yeah, photography, image making, light writing, if you want to translate the word literally, is about capturing something ephemeral and stretching it out, prolonging it, making it last. What does that sound a lot like? Sounds like pickling some, pickling some cabbage, if you ask me. Sounds like saying, taking something that would exist for a moment, this concentrated sunlight in a vegetable or even meat and, and making it last for your own benefit. You're absolutely right. Um, my relationship to time, I mean, it's, it's even funny when I got transferred into the lab at Noma. I mean, you, you lived and died by the clock in that restaurant back at the old Noma, you know, I'd wake up every day at like 5.25 AM, have to be out the door by 5.45, be in the kitchen changed by 5.55 to make sure that like the ovens were on, everything was set up like you if things weren't happening by quarter past nine like they weren't gonna happen and you you would feel the full wrath of your sous chefs and the head chef you know so like you used to live and die by the clock and then all of a sudden you know a year and a half later i'm transferred into the lab and things are done when they're done you know like you work on the microbe schedule you throw that rigorous you know, uh, slavery to the clock, to the minute hand, which is only but a human representation of time. It's something we, we put onto time so that we could be like, oh, this is how I'm going to divide my day. This is how I'm going to be productive. This is how I'm going to keep track natural cycles. Sure, there might be circadian rhythms that tap into the cycles of the sun and the moon, but like natural cycles work of their own accord. You know, mice live for two years, tortoises live for 200. You know, it's like, and, and the span of time between that, just for animals, who's to say? Who decides? How does it even match up? The only thing to be sure is that there are cycles, that things continually transform, that there are peaks and valleys and, and birth and rebirth, birth and rebirth are like waves of existence that happen through each other. So I think, you know, both processes, fermentation more so, have gotten me to see the present as just like the, the thin slice of this unending braid whose undulations like don't even match up, but they're still bound to each other. And you're like, you're happening through it all. 
and start points and endpoints are fuzzy. You know, that's the other thing that fermentation teaches me is that our definitions of boundaries, of species, of absolutes don't exist. Everything is blurry. The present is blurry. When is now? It's specious. It's smeared out. And how smeared out it is depends on your mental state, depends on what sort of organism you are. To a blue whale somewhere in the ocean, what's now? If it's traversing the span of the Pacific over the course of months, what's now? You know? So I think it's definitely gotten me to see time uh, much more in the scope of the long now. You know, pit that against the fact that I live in 2020 and I'm on a laptop right now. And thank God I'm talking to you. So I'm not checking Instagram and refreshing a feed that has nothing to show me. You know, pit that against just living in the modern world and being plugged into it as much as I try to rip myself out of it. Um, but I'm, I'm very fortunate for the teachings of, of fermentation and photography and all my creative endeavors that they've always imbued some sense of something bigger than myself into myself. Hmm. And, 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 you know, do you have a spiritual practice? I mean, I know you come from a pretty diverse cultural background, but, you know, in, in your daily life, like what, 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 what do you tap into? If, if anything, what is, what is that process for you? I don't tap into, <laughs> I, I'm not a very spiritual person. Um, I live my life by a code. I try to be a good person. I try to help strangers where I can. I don't take shit and I don't do harm. <laughs> that's, that's my motto, you know? Um, I, again, harking back to something else we've already talked about, it's like, but you know, everything exists to some respect at the expense of something else. So of course I do harm if I take a flight somewhere to go speak at a conference or whatever. Um, but I try, to, I try to tread as lightly as I can on this earth while I'm here. My spiritual practice comes from the books behind me. My spiritual practice is not a daily thing. It's not going to a church or synagogue. It's not. My spiritual practice is spending a lifetime trying to understand how I fit into the tapestry of existence of the cosmos and the universe and understanding its mechanisms and now trying to write a book about that so that I can explain it to other people because I can't imagine a better way to live your life than in service of understanding why you're living it at all. Mm. And it's, it's Tell not us a linked oh, to anyone. Yeah, no, 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 go ahead. Go ahead. No, 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 I was going to say, tell us a little bit more about this book. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I am writing a book that is tentatively uh, titled Rotten um, or The Symbiotic Supper. <laughs> I'm still 
debating what it's going to be called. Um, and the subtitle changes even more. Um, it's either going to be called uh, on the co-evolution of microbes and mankind um, or, you know, who knows what, an entropic view of fermentation and life in the universe. I don't even know what it's going to be called. Um, but it is a book where um, this is not a recipe book. I definitely talk about fermentation. And I guess I will have to talk about some recipes and do, um, but only very broadly. Um, where I, I, I hark back to something that happened in my childhood where I was going to school one morning and left my bowl of Cheerios out on the counter. Um, uh, and, you know, it's like May or June, end of the school year. I was watching Transformers in the morning, got distracted, last one to leave the house. Go play at school all day in this little cramped two-bedroom apartment and then come back. And my mom's already home and she's like, you left your cereal out, what are you doing? Like, clean up after yourself, you know, as Caribbean moms do. <laughs> And uh, I go to take the bowl and be like, sorry. And it's like stiff. And like the Cheerios are like glued in place. And I'm like, what is going on here? And my mom inspects it and she dips her finger in and she's like, you made yogurt. I'm like, how did I make yogurt? We buy yogurt from the store. And like, as an eight year old, you don't think much of it, but then unbeknownst to me, I would spend a lifetime in food and unbeknownst to me back then I would end up studying fermentation it would become my job and i'd become known for fermentation and i have always thought back to that moment long before i was ever called a fermenter or director of anything i'd made yogurt so why does a human food milk from cows a human myself and microbes that probably came from my own mouth why does that make fermentation all of its own accord how does this food that has existed for thousands of years and sustained whole populations of people from you know the mongol uh horse milkers of the tibetan steppes to you know like slavic cultures in bulgaria to the whole dairy industry of the united states today how does yogurt exist independently of any recipe that was written down time and time and time again so i spent a whole book investigating that and i go way deep <laughs> my editor's like rein it in david like manage your scope like what sort of question are you trying to answer and you know ostensibly i'm trying to answer like how is fermentation a thing and then you know by chapter five or whatever i'm like the big bang <laughs> <laughs> because they are related in way more profound ways than that happened and now we're here like in way way more profound ways than that um so it's a daunting and grueling book to write but i'm i'm uh i'm in the home stretch now um and it's it's a fascinating exploration of the history of biology the history of life on earth um, I mean, the first organisms were microbes, and they are still here today. Um, you know, uh, speaking speaking of waves, there's this there's this phrase in biology to to just hark back to the last question for a second. You know, it's like now that I view time as like, or or even life and rebirth as organisms, as waves of undulation and creation. 
there's this phrase in biology where um, they say, biologists will say that ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. And to break that down, ontogeny means um, like ontology, like what is, and geny means like progression, genesis. Uh, phylogeny means like phylum and, and phyla, like branches on a tree and genesis as well. Um, so ontogeny means, um, it refers to um, the development of an organism, like from the point that it's, if, it's, if it was sexual reproduction, that it was created to the point of its death. Uh, and phylogeny talks about like the creation of species, like down through the evolutionary tree. What one of my favorite things in biology is the fact that ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. If you look at a human embryo, like very early on in its development, it looks like a fish and then it looks kind of like a salamander and then it looks kind of like a froggy thing and then it kind of looks like a, you know, and all living animals today, when you look at their embryos in the process of development, kind of trace back in this very condensed timeline, the body plans of all sorts of organisms that we've all evolved from. And the most beautiful part of that for me is the fact that life begins as a single cell. If you want to talk about ontogeny recapitulating phylogeny, there is no more beautiful a notion than the fact that all humans are born of a single cell, the combination of well, two cells that then the sperm opens itself up and donates its DNA to the egg that then takes over from there. But that we start from one cell and turn into all this, reaches back in time some, I don't know, 3.9, 4.2 billion years to the very first organisms on Earth, these single-celled replicators that were, wait for it, fermenters in and of themselves, eating the random sugars that would coalesce out of all the organic molecules in their environment, the sugars that they built their RNA backbones off of, no less, the R in RNA stands for ribose, um, which is a very simple sugar that has been found on like comets and in the dust of space. And for want of any sort of like organic material that was made of other life forms, if you're the first life form on earth to munch on, you're eating the sugar that's, well, that you're also made out of. And to eat sugar in the absence of oxygen, like our yeast cell in the definition of fermentation at the start of this episode, well, that is fermentation. So it's, 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 it's a big, you can see how this book kind of just spirals of its own accord. Because you touch this one little thing, you think that like a pickle fermenting on your counter in some brine. I just made a batch the other day. I picked up these beautiful little, they call them school cucumbers here in Denmark. You, such a simple process, the fermentation of a cucumber into a pickle. Such a simple transformation. When you dig into it, is like the history of life on earth connected to lessons that can be gleaned from the cosmic microwave background radiation of the early universe. And it's, it's if I pull this book off and my editor's like, okay, your scope went wide, but this is good. I will be very proud of myself because I think that there are truly magical 
magical lessons to be learned from the spontaneous creation of life um, to the attraction of, of branches of life across scales of size and time and to their continued persistence that keeps us here alive today together. Um, and it all can be distilled down to a simple meal, to food, because that's the first thing that the first organism had to do was eat before it could, before, can we swear on this podcast? Absolutely. I already said, I already dropped a couple of F-bombs. Before it could fuck, it had to feed. And that's the point. Um, food is energy. It is so, so central to life that life is defined by its very consumption. Um, and there's a lot, a lot to dig into in that. And I think that fermentation is the perfect gateway drug to really have your mind blown when mm. you get into it. Mm. Um, David, this, I mean, you said so many in, incredible um, things that, you know, I've, I feel like we'll have to have you back because we didn't <laughs> even re well, we didn't even really get into like, you know, like just like the ways in which like the pandemic showed how thin the margins of restaurants are right or like oh, yeah. you know yeah. the kind of like the myth of the proliferation of like fine dining and mm. the ways in which it's just completely fucked over um so many workers um and has skewed um you know the supply chains that you know were accelerated by the pandemic um and you know some a couple of nuggets that just you know it's interesting i know you say you don't have like a formal um or 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 or, or cognizant uh, spiritual practice, but in a way, your existence can't be but a spiritual practice. Like you are an expression of 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 energy and and life. So there there is no separation anyway, you know. And so the words that you say, you know, like I love this idea of like the long now, or you know, what is now to a blue whale, right? Like that's that's some like. That's like that's like a koan, right? <laughs> like, like I could just sit and meditate on that for, you know, the rest of the month. Um, and I don't, I do want to be respectful of your time. I just have, you know, a couple more questions, and really, actually, just want to bring it home um, yeah. before I ask my last question. But you know, in thinking about time and in thinking about the 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 allowing of process to take place, right? The allowing of it, not the forcing or the need to regiment, but the allowing. Like what, like how do we, how do we carry some of these slow practices like into our everyday lives, like into our homes, right? How do we, how can we use these processes to shift our everyday living? Um, I, I really recommend you do it. I, I recommend falling in love with a fermentation recipe and then missing it when you finish it. And then realizing that you either had to plan to have it, like just nail a recipe for like a simple pickle. If you like cucumber pickles, if you, if you can't eat a sandwich without a crunchy pickle, like skewered through the top, like me, um, just find a good recipe for pickles. They're, they're so simple. And any pickle you make yourself, once you nail it, is like so unspeakably better than any pickle you could buy in a store. 
um, you have to fall in love with it to have it affect you. And it's easy to fall in love with. That's the good part. But once you do, you'll realize that it's like, oh, wow, shit, like this takes time. And I can't have my cake and eat it too. Like I can't have finished the last pickle in the fridge and just want another one and just like go and get it. No, you have to like, like go to the, go to the grocer, go to the farmer's market, go get your fresh pickle, then come back and then wait a week. And then like wait another week for it to get really good in the fridge and then enjoy it. That's about, that's what I'm talking about, about like tuning into biological processes beyond the instant notification, you know? That's about bringing the outside world, the, 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 the timescales of nature indoors. And it's probably one of the easiest ways to do that. I mean, houseplants are cute and all, and I, Lord knows I have a lot of them, but I think fermentation is more instructive um, because you you have to you you have to meet it where it is. Um, other ways to slow down our our modern lives: don't watch the news. Honest to God, don't watch the news. The news is so inflammatory and so incendiary. And in some respects, I mean, like, yeah, it's good to be informed. Hang out with friends. They'll tell you the important stuff. <laughs> and hang out with a diverse group of friends so you get a diverse group of important information. Some of it might be conflicting, but at least you'll learn about what's important to the people in your life. Um, like, I don't know. Are we on the brink of World War III? Is Russia going to invade? <sighs> I'm sure the same thing was said uh, like five years ago in 2015 and you know like CNN needs ratings nothing sells like nuclear war so you know you could stress out about that odds are you can't do anything about it in the first place <laughs> so why worry about it just turn off the New York Times notifications you know and, and just try and extract yourself read a book god I bought a stack of books today from the bookstore before this interview and you know the clerk was was you know being cheeky. What one, two, three, four, five, six, seven books? Here they are. Not that your viewers can see this, so maybe I'll read them out. So that yeah, read them out for us. So that people like knowing what I'm up to in my library. The Dawn of Everything by David Graeber and David Wingro. Um, David Attenborough's The Living Planet, just because I wanted his take on the state of the world. On the Origin of Evolution by John and Mary Gribbons. Um, this is a friend of mine, uh, Professor Rob Dunn, A Natural History of the Future. Uh, I have John Green's The Anthropocene Reviewed. I'm a huge fan of his, brilliant. Being Human by Charles Foster, um, Adventures in 40,000 Years of Consciousness, and uh, Alain de Botton's Essays in Love. clerk at the bookstore was like you really need all these books at once and I'm like you know what I do because I would rather have a reason to not open my phone again <laughs> once I finish the first one where I'm like this is better for me than being on the internet because someone had to think really long and hard about every word that they put on these pages then a whole bunch of other people had to like comb through that to make sure that it was correct and that it met editorial standards. And you know, people had to care 
about what was said in these books. Who gives a shit about the comment sections? <laughs> so read and ferment. Ferment your brain by reading. Those are good ways to slow down. I, you know, it's interesting really quickly, like, you know, even that, like the, the, the fermentation process of writing a book, right? Um, it's interesting that, like, yes, there is a lot of time that goes into it, whether or not what the people are saying are right or not. Like there is still like a level of thought, whereas, you know, on Twitter, there isn't. <laughs> it's like literally no, like it's just reaction, right? It's react. Yeah. It's people, you're not reading thought, you're reading reactions, um, which then force you to react. Um, whereas, you know, a book process is a slower process, you know, both in the creation and then also in the consumption of it. Um, well, first of all, David, before I asked, you know, my last question, I want to take a moment to acknowledge it. Well, first of all, thank you. Thank you for this time um, that you've shared with us, but then also acknowledge, you know, just the sheer uh, will and curiosity about the world that took you from being like an apathetic, you know, student who didn't have good enough grades to get a, 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 a university scholarship to, you know, being at the number one restaurant in the world and then coming back to share this knowledge of universal processes, you know, with us that we can incorporate into our everyday lives. I mean, again, there were so many incredible gems and understandings that, you know, you shared with us from, you know, the slow now to, you know, what does it mean to, you know, allow like the peace that allowing energy to just flow through you know allows for and you know particularly as it pertains to um black imagination and 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 just moving through the world as a marginalized or oppressed person i think the fermentation process maps directly onto music right like funk right funk is about fermentation right mm -hmm. funk is about um the potentiality of of decay right funk is about that liminal space between the ending and the beginning of something it is about change and so when we think about george clinton we cannot not think about pickles and i guess when we can't not think about pickles we cannot think about like the big bang which is the line that you're drawing so yeah. um <laughs> so thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you um but what is the world you imagine for the future? The world I hope for and the world I see as a plausible outcome, I think are different. I am worried that we won't catch our next step fast enough. Um, you know, you, you, you talked about <clears throat> reactions to capitalism um, and, and you used a specific phrase like the, uh, that like a, a, a choice was gonna be forced on us. The thing is that choice can either come from within or it can come from without. And both are painful, but one is way more painful than the other one is way more painful. And it's not like it's an either or, it's not a binary. 
there are shades of some stuff coming from without and stuff, some stuff coming from within. But honest to God, the best case scenario is for us to agree that there's a problem. <laughs> like step one, acknowledge that there is something to be fixed <laughs> and then hopefully cooperate to fix it together so that we can mitigate um, the worst case scenario. I would hope that we don't end up in um, a, a globalized world that is connected digitally, but balkanized locally. Um, because that will only exacerbate the inequality that's been growing steadily over the past hundred or for a long, long time. It's, it's only going to get worse. Um, if things get worse, but the structures that you know ensure their own power maintain themselves. Um, I would like to see a world that is divorced from the amassing of capital and instead uses other metrics to determine viability and worth. Um, metrics of regeneration of the earth, metrics of public good, of, of service, of education, of mentorship, of stewardship. You know, you see, you see big corporations talk about like true cost accounting and factoring in externalities and green initiatives and sustainability awards. And a lot of that is BS, man, if they don't put their money where their mouth is. And I think the hardest thing for the corporations that truly have the power that spend millions every year is to lobby governments to ensure that they keep getting to do the things they've always done. I think that um, the hardest thing for them to swallow is that it can't be about shareholder profits, you know, like, because that is the problem. Just the constant amassing of wealth of these imaginary numbers in bank accounts is the problem. What is needed to thrive in a capitalist system is very different from what is needed to live a full life. Um, and you would be surprised how little material wealth you need to live a full life. Take a trip to Africa, work on an orphanage for a week. I did that back in 2015, helping out a friend of, of uh, Lars Williams, who was my mentor in the fermentation lab. And, uh, you know, you get a very different picture of what it takes to be happy when you play with kids that were taken off the street and given a place to live and a farm to tend and a yard to play in and people to care and look after them you know you get a, you get a very different picture of like concerns um and now i'm at a point in my life where i'm exposed to having to sit in like boardrooms and hear executives talk about like oh well you know this account was down to two point whatever percent and that's a huge problem i'm like who's it a problem for 
does this matter? <laughs> does does this matter? Does this quarter really matter in the scope of like <laughs> geological time? Does it? Of course, it doesn't fucking matter. We can learn what matters either by introspection and paying attention to the teachers that have done the work, whether those be indigenous and native tribes or researchers who have spent their entire lives trying to unlock nature's secrets. We can, we can figure out what matters by paying attention or we can figure out what matters by getting a rude fucking wake up call when push comes to shove. And to me, one of those scenarios is better than the other, but it takes an active um, unlearning of the systems that have become the water in which we swim to go beyond them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know mm -hmm. what I gave. I gave us two options for a future world. <laughs> and many shades of gray between them. I don't know which one that is, but I would like to live in the one where there is a continuation of our culture and our species and people can live in a fair and just society and have the freedom to enjoy their lives while mitigating the harm done to others in the process. Yeah, yeah, it sounds it's, it sounds like a wish for an expansion of of the understanding of value, right? That yeah. that 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 money is just a type of wealth. It is not wealth in of itself. It is a type. It is one way, um, and one that is kind of inherently, you know, unsustainable. Um, and you know, this this lesson, right? This impending, impending, encroaching. Um, apex point like you know coming from without or within in a way is is inevitable but i think you know even speaking to what you mentioned earlier about you know the the formation of hurricanes the the system that created the hurricane right and the system that has the land that dissipates it is the same um and so the the dissipation of this energy you know is is a part of the process that we find ourselves in mm -hmm. um and so yeah david you are a gym um i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to wind down because i'm 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 hype now now <laughs> i'm hype and i'm awake um but this has been an absolute absolute pleasure thank you so thank much you. yeah it's been yeah it's been, it's been real um i'm blushing beneath my melanin i swear <laughs> offered one too many compliments i'm gonna tell my I'm, girlfriend about this she's like oh wow i'm sure this is gonna go to your head thank you all so much for tuning in or listening in i'm dating myself here this conversation with David was just littered with so much information, I definitely took notes. What about you? What stood out? Share some of your stories and favorite moments with us over on Instagram and Twitter at Black Imagination. And be sure to head to www.blackimagination.com backslash survey to let us know a little bit more about you. We appreciate you so much. And as our sister Octavia Butler states, 
All that you touch, you change. All that you change, changes you. Stay curious and keep dreaming.